Welcome to Reconciliation Road, an exciting new podcast hosted by yours truly, Dan George. Here on Reconciliation Road, we seek to build bridges of better understanding with the hopes of creating a markedly different future for our children and grandchildren than the often painful memories of our elders. I believe we all have a role to play in this journey we call reconciliation, and I seek to understand and celebrate the good work being done right now with the game changers, trailblazers, and movers and shakers. Good people, reconciliation is a journey, not a destination. The road to reconciliation is a long and winding one with many stops along the way. When we come together, great things do happen. Thank you for joining me on this journey. My guest for this episode of Reconciliation Road is Dr. Bruce McIver. Bruce is a partner at First Peoples Law, LLP. Bruce is recognized nationally and internationally as a leading practitioner of Aboriginal law in Canada. He is a member of the Manitoba Métis Federation. Bruce understands the importance of reconciliation more than most. He's written an entire book on it. He just published his new book, Standoff, Why Reconciliation Fails Indigenous People and How to Fix It. In this incredible book, Bruce articulates what Indigenous peoples in this country know so well and what can be clearly seen to all Canadians if they are paying attention to the constant stream of news reports of standoffs and confrontations. Canada's reconciliation project clearly has gone off the rails. In this series of concise and thoughtful essays, Bruce explains why reconciliation with Indigenous peoples is failing and what needs to be done to fix it. Bruce's message is consistent and powerful. If Canadians are brave enough to confront the reality of the country's colonialist past and present and insist that politicians replace empty promises with concrete, meaningful change, there is a realistic path forward based on respect, recognition, and the implementation of Indigenous rights. I am so excited to have Bruce on the show here today. I know all our listeners are going to learn so much. Welcome to Reconciliation Road, Bruce. The Truth and Reconciliation Commission was officially established on June 1st, 2008, with the purpose of documenting the history and lasting impacts of the Canadian Indian residential school system on Indigenous students and their families. In June 2015, the TRC released an executive summary of its findings, along with 94 calls to action regarding reconciliation between Canadians and Indigenous peoples. The Commission officially concluded in December 2015 with the publication of a multi-volume final report that concluded the school system amounted to cultural genocide. The theme of our podcast here at Reconciliation Road is indeed reconciliation. Um, thank you very much, Mr. McIver, for taking time out of your schedule to be with us here today. Bruce, what does that concept mean to you, reconciliation? Well, thanks, George. Thanks, uh, thanks, Dad. Thanks very much for inviting me. I think when I hear the word reconciliation, at least the way that it's been framed by the Canadian courts, my first thought is that it's set up as something that's next to impossible to succeed. And that's because the way the courts have framed reconciliation, basically they're trying to reconcile a right with a lie. <laughs> and the right or the pre-existing rights of Indigenous peoples all across the country. And the lie is that somehow colonizers can show up, plant a flag, and gain an interest in Indigenous lands and usurp, displace Indigenous sovereignty. And so those two things just don't fit together. And I think that that's where we get a lot of the tension is 
when reconciliation is framed that way, um, I see that there's very little chance of success. Yeah, and it's also, I think, complicated when many Canadians apparently have a memory of convenience, right? Where we only remember those things that support our particular worldview or our, our particular needs at the time. So, Bruce, what is the one thing you wish every uh, Canadian knew that would make the road to reconciliation a better one? So where are some opportunities for Canadians? I think there's a, a few things that come to mind. One of the most important ones is for Canadians to appreciate that Indigenous peoples have their own laws. Their laws were here, they were on the land, they were exercising them over the land long before colonizing nations showed up. And those laws haven't disappeared. Those laws haven't been superseded by Canadian law. And that's very important. I know that law school traditionally lots students are taught that all laws in Canada have to derive from the Canadian constitution. And that's just basically wrong. Not all lawmaking authority rests in the Canadian constitution. The constitution divides up the Crown's lawmaking authority. And as we all know, between the provincial and federal governments. But separate from that, there is Indigenous lawmaking authority that existed before the Constitution. It still exists. It's in parallel. And I think if Canadians appreciated that, this is decision-making authority that rests in Indigenous peoples themselves and that the values of Canada are there to recognize that, uphold that. And that's what can make Canada uh, such a great nation. But as long as they think all lawmaking authority rests with the provincial or federal governments, we've got a very tough road to hold. Yeah, and maybe, Bruce, just for our listeners' benefit, can you say, uh, describe the difference between Aboriginal law versus Indigenous law? What's the difference between the two? Sure. Thanks, Dad. This always makes me think of a few years ago, I started getting invited to speak at Indigenous law conferences. And I was very accustomed. I speak at a lot of Aboriginal law conferences. But I had to scratch my head a little bit because I was, why are they reaching out to me? And I'd look on the list to see who else was being invited. We don't, we're not experts on Indigenous law. Uh, I know a certain amount about Aboriginal law, and that is basically the law of the colonizers. That's the Constitution, that's provincial and federal statutes. That's what we refer to as Aboriginal law. Indigenous laws are the laws that are inherent to Indigenous peoples themselves. And of course, we all know there are different bodies of Indigenous law all across the country. There's no one Indigenous law. Uh, I have clients coast to coast. And when I speak to them, whether it's the Mi'kmaq on the East Coast or the Kitsan, 
on the West Coast, they all have their own bodies of law. So that's what we refer to as Indigenous law. And it's really, really important that that's not, that the, the, that not ter that term isn't used for what is actually colonizers law. Because if we do that, then that's just another form of colonization itself. Indigenous people <laughs> suddenly don't even have their own laws. It's all subsumed within the laws of the provincial and federal governments. Mm -hmm. There are uh, many different uh, Indigenous leaders um, subscribe to our, our, our podcast, right? And, um, you know, whenever I do our work with our people, you know, I'm always reminded that prior to contact, we weren't just unorganized running around out in the territories willy-nilly. We had complex governing systems. We had laws. We had protocols. We had traditions. We had our language and our culture. So we were not uh, empty-handed. And uh, again, we were highly sophisticated in many different ways, particularly when you think about, um, you know, trading and, and bartering. Um, given that many um, leaders subscribe to our podcast, as a practicing legal expert, Bruce, what advice would you give elected and hereditary leaders in the reconciliation space? Where do you see the biggest gains being made regarding the advancement of rights and title? Sure, thanks. Thanks, Dan. I just, before I get there, the point you make is so important. And that's another thing that not Indigenous people need to recognize. It's not only that those laws existed, they were practiced, but for decades and over a hundred years, they were respected by the colonizing nations of Europe. So that early phase, what gave rise to the to the Treaty of Niagara, of Niagara, 1764, the Peace and Friendship Treaties, respect for and acknowledgement of Indigenous lawmaking authority was there. And I think it's important that Canadians as a whole recognize that when Indigenous leaders are out there saying you need to respect our law, they're not asking for something new. No. This is a principle that the country was founded on. It's been lost in the last 150 years. Or so through these settler majority governments focused on taking indigenous lands, but it's a fundamental principle that the nation was built on. For advice and what excites me, I think it is revitalizing and ensuring that uh, nations are out there in front demanding recognition of their, their laws. I think that's the most exciting work being done across the country. And of course, as always, it's being led by Indigenous people, mm -hmm. both Indigenous people in a leadership position, but most importantly, their citizens, their members, elders, youth mm -hmm. are driving this. And that is the most exciting work going on. What I um, always emphasize with clients is that when governments, whether provincial or federal, are coming out there and seeking to engage on proposals, 
if you're still doing consultation, you've probably lost. Yeah. We've moved beyond consultation. We've moved into a consent-based world and exercising in indigenous law world. So that's often my number one piece of advice for First Nations and my clients across the country. Let's find ways to move forward where your nation is not an input for someone else's decision. Let's find ways to move forward where they're recognizing your authority to exercise your own decision. Mm-hmm. And that's being done in a lot of ways all across the country, but that's definitely from what I see the most exciting work. Yeah, Bruce, and we also know um, through our work that you can have more than one chief in a community, <laughs> right? And I think that leads to a lot of confusion. And if I look at our own people, uh, the Wet'suwet'en, and I look at Coastal Gas Link, and I you know, I look at the, uh, the tension between elected uh, and hereditary, particularly in the, um, you know, Wet'suwet'en, which I'm, I'm from the Gilsahu Big Frog Clan. Mm. Is there anywhere in the country where you see elected and hereditary working together in, in ways? Yeah. And, and maybe, you know, um, we don't see a lot of that in British Columbia. You know, is there any good examples here in BC that you could illuminate for us or across the yeah. country? Yeah, the, I think my first point on that is that is a real issue. But I think what needs to be acknowledged at the outset is that this is no fault of Indigenous peoples themselves. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're in this difficult situation, but it's because of the forces of colonization that have worked against them for such a long time. So primarily, Two, two things. So the forces of forced assimilation through the Indian Act and the suppression of Indigenous governance through the Indian Act, that's what's led to a lot of this. And then the fact that Indigenous peoples' economies have often been marge, uh, marginalized through the denial of their rights the denial of their title in the land has led, has put Indigenous people in a very difficult situation. I empathize with Indian Act chief councils who find themselves in a difficult situation. They need resources to address pressing real concerns in their communities. But they're in that position because their nation's title in the land has been denied for decade after decade. And if they, if their title was recognized, they would have the resources and they wouldn't have to go um, trying to get as much as they can from a lot of these uh, agreements that are put on the table by companies. It puts them in a very difficult situation. So there are good examples of these working to uh, of these different forms of governance working together. I'm not going to name names, but I've have clients that have really worked hard to revive uh, in their particular 
situations, their family head systems. Mm-hmm. And so all, all depending on, on their own laws, on their own culture. And they all go there to seek authority to move a, a, a head, right? They realize that in their particular situation, decision-making authority doesn't necessarily rest complete with Indian Act chiefs and councils. Mm-hmm. And so they work very hard to revise, revive their own decision-making. Uh, I know of at least one example, and there are probably more, where Indigenous people have, uh, through their own work, revitalized their traditional governance, and they still have the Indian Act Chief Council. But it's clear internally that Indian Act Chief Council are only responsible for on-reserve decisions, exercising delegated authority from minister. If it's an issue about inherent rights or Aboriginal rights off-reserve, that is not their function. And that's recognized. At, At the same time, uh, there are a lot of Indian Act Chief Council who have the support of the members, who have the support of the citizens. Mm-hmm. They are authorized and they can take positions on those questions. So it's not that they never can, but it's really important for government and industry to be aware of what is the specific situation with the Indigenous peoples that you're dealing with. And really importantly, don't be self-serving about it. Mm-hmm. Because we see that very often. If there were any Indigenous peoples that government industry knew, you can't just go speak to Indian Act Chief Council. It was the Wet'suwet'en and the Gitsan. <laughs> they were the ones who brought the Delgamook they are the plaintiffs, the hereditary chiefs are the plaintiffs in that litigation, but all the way to the Supreme Court of Canada. So that's not that government industry don't know who to talk to. Mm-hmm. I think it's more of, of a case where who would they prefer to talk to? Yeah, and it's been described in, in some instances as choosing the path of least resistance, right? And, yeah, and it's important. Like, why is there less resistance? Mm-hmm. Uh, it's because of the forces of colonization themselves. Yeah, and I think that those groups, um, particularly the elected chief and council that are responsible for the provision of essential services to the uh, their, their citizenry, you know, they have a different motivation, um, short-term motivation than potentially a long-term um, vision that a hereditary leader would have, right? Yeah. yeah, so a lot of that depends on who you're dealing with across the, the country. I have some of our clients are hereditary chiefs. Mm-hmm. Most of our clients are First Nation chief and councils. Mm-hmm. But when this comes up, I speak very frankly to them. You're going to be asked you need to be able to respond. Do you have the support of the citizens? 
And how would you demonstrate the support of citizens if you're taking a position on rights title? That's important. And all my clients are very serious about that. Mm -hmm. Uh, They work very hard to ensure that they are exercising decision-making authority, not within the Indian Act solely, but that they are authorized by their their citizens. Mm -hmm. And I think an earlier comment, um, poverty. Like poverty has been normalized in far too many of our of our of our homes and far too many of our communities. When I think of um, you know some of the reserves, my own reserve of Hagelget in New Hazelton, you know um, it's uh, it's normal to grow up in poverty. It's normal to go on uh, on on welfare, and and that uh, we need alongside of the governance confusion, we need the proper resources to undo the damage created by the Indian Act. And I don't think people understand not only the historical damage that has been done by the Indian Act, but the ongoing damage that is being done um, by the Indian Act. So I was uh, the purpose of my question was to try and illuminate those kind of places where people are able to share power, where leaders can share power and distribute leadership on behalf of the people that they represent, right? But but again, you know, trying to find ways and means to operate in a, in, a, in a contemporary context while still maintaining, you know, connection to who we are as Indigenous people. That's right. Yeah. And a lot of the reasons for, um, you know, that normalization of poverty, a lot of it, I think, lies at the feet of the Supreme Court of Canada. The Indian Act plays an important role there, but also the way that the Supreme Court have framed has framed Aboriginal rights under the Canadian Constitution. Uh, That is also a very serious contributing factor because they've bent over backwards to as much as possible limit or even eliminate the possibility of commercial rights. So when you're looking at the Supreme Court of Canada cases, a uh, perfect example is around fisheries, food, social, and ceremonial fisheries. Where's the commercial aspect to yeah. this fishery? Why aren't Indigenous people recognized as economic people, as commercial people? How do they think the fur trade ever got going? <laughs> yeah. You know, if you read the journals of the fur, traders all across the country. They're replete with comments about Indigenous people. These people drive a hard bargain. Mm-hmm. They're economic people. The fur trade, it wasn't a gift from Europe. It was grafted upon the existing trade networks that Indigenous people had for thousands of years. Mm-hmm. That's why it was successful. So the idea that suddenly that is all but eliminated, that's a very serious ish ish issue. And then even when the court, in a begrudging way, has said, well, there is a, a there is a commercial component of a protected right under Section 35 of the Constitution. And one example, of course, is with the Mi'kmaq and the Marshall decision and the right, the treaty right to a 
commercial fishery. Still, the court limiting it to a so-called moderate livelihood. Why does it have to be a moderate livelihood? Why can't indigenous people have more than a moderate existence? And of course, we know why, because there's the concern of the competition with non-indigenous fishermen, right? But that is a key component to this, the way that the courts have framed uh, what's possible under Section 35 of the Constitution makes it very, very difficult for Indigenous people across country to participate in a fulsome way in the economy that's going on all around them. Reconciliation is, um, you know, when I talk to our people, they many people feel it's just an empty word. No, like there's just all all it is is really land acknowledgments at the beginning of a meeting is 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 what, is what it's become, right? And and I'm just wondering, what are some things people can do to be allies in recon in reconciliation? Because you know, we we've got many of our friends and colleagues that are reaching out to us. What are some good advice we could give about how they could help? Yeah. Yeah, that, thanks, Dad. That's such an important question. Just on the reconciliation front, I think for a lot of Indigenous people, it's turned into a four-letter word. Mm -hmm. They don't want to hear it anymore because it's become a tool of oppression mm -hmm. itself in the large, to a large extent. That what are you complaining about? We're involved in reconciliation <laughs> with the program. So it's a way to silence mm -hmm. Indigenous people all too often. And the same, unfortunately, is what you see in some situations with land acknowledgements. Mm -hmm. That um, they're a way to silence people. We've done a land acknowledgement. Now let's move on to the real business of solidifying the position of the colonizers. Yeah. That's what it often turns into. So we, I, I think for non-Indigenous people, the first step is to recognize that. That's not sufficient. I've got a piece in my book about this. So what can allies do and what they what should they avoid doing? But acknowledging that, I think, is very important. And then second, get beyond the rhetoric. We've had enough rhetoric. Indigenous people are sick of the rhetoric. Where are the deliverables? Show me the, de the, the deliverables. Mm -hmm. What is the timeline for the deliverables? Where are the measurables? These are all things that government, industry people, these are terms they deal with all the time. Deliverables, measurables, performance indicators, all that jargon. Why don't they apply that to the so-called reconciliation project? I think that's very important. And then lastly, for non-Indigenous people, it is very important that they are not silent. 
mm-hmm. that they are out there. You know, I always talk about the the cruel calculus that I think government officials, politicians often get involved in. They look to see is an issue solely an indigenous mm. issue, or has this crossed over? Are non-indigenous people paying attention? Are non-indigenous people out there on the front lines, or at least in in the second rank, supporting indigenous people? That tends to be more of a a wake-up call. I think Mm -hmm. it's really important. The operation of the Canadian state works very hard to marginalize and legitimize Indigenous land defenders. It's important that non-Indigenous people are stepping forward in a very vocal way and saying, we support them. What government is doing is unacceptable. And it's out of, out of line with our vision of Canada. You need to correct your course. I think it's really important that non-Indigenous people involve themselves in that way as much as possible. Excellent. Bruce, uh, you are seen as a leader in the field of uh, Aboriginal law. So I want to give you a chance to share some of the projects that you're working on right now that you would like to highlight. And you referenced your book a little bit earlier. I have a <laughs> copy of it here, Standoff, While, Why Reconciliation Fails Indigenous Peoples and How to Fix It. So what projects are you working on that you'd like to share with our listeners, Bruce? Sure. Thanks. Thanks, Dan. I just wanted to say with the book, I really appreciate all the support I've had from friends, family, colleagues, clients all across the country. Uh, I think that's one of the best parts that has come for me out of the book success is uh, the just the, the support I've received. And I really want to pause for a minute and mm-hmm. honor that. None of us do any of this work without the support of everyone else around us. And uh, I think that's definitely in my, that's my situation. Some of the projects I'm working on, well, um, I'm working on another book. So this, this one seems to have been a bit of a success. So my next one that I'm currently working on, um, tentatively calling it Indigenous Rights in One Minute clear, plain answers to all your questions. Wow. Yeah, I think that'll be helpful. I get asked this a lot. The same kind of questions over and over again. And if there's something that I hope I can do, it's to write clearly and plainly about the law for Mm non-lawyers. Best compliment I get on my book is when people say I really enjoyed it you didn't sound like a lawyer and I <laughs> fantastic that's exactly what I was trying to do I hope it's accurate about the law mm-hmm. but I've always been a believer the law is not that complicated come on mm-hmm. it's not that hard we can figure it out 
a lot of times, particularly with my clients, they already know it. All that I'm doing is confirming what they already know. So this book will literally be filled with short answers to commonly asked questions. And uh, for, for most of them, you can read it in a minute. So you want to know what is the doctrine of discovery? I'll give you an answer you can read in a minute. Beautiful. So that's that's what that's about. And then we're also doing a lot of this kind of work through my law firm, First People's Law. As, As you probably know, Dan, we do a lot of public education work. I've got such a great team around me. So I'm not, uh, I can't take credit for all this important work that's being done, but just to highlight a few things, people can check out our website for more details. But one of the ongoing projects we have is our own little podcast. Mm. or cells and we're really um taking the approach what's called share the podium so we're using the footprint we have in the resources to invite indigenous people in to talk to a wider audience if they don't have the platform and we did one a few Weeks ago, a group of wonderful Indigenous law students talking about their experience at law school and talking about what they intend to do when they become lawyers. And I tell you, Dan, when I listen to the podcast, I get shivers Mm -hmm. down my back. It's just so inspiring and so wonderful. Yeah, and I, I, you know, the work that I do um, in the province here around strategic facilitation and governance and planning and stuff, the the one thing that I'm most encouraged about is our young people. You know, the, the young people are getting uh, more highly educated, uh, more articulate, and they're also um, following the old ways. You know, so I'm, I'm, I really feel that into the future, uh, we are in in good hands, right? You know, and and I want to acknowledge uh, you, uh, Bruce, and your team for all that you do to promote um, reconciliation in all its forms and, and, and all the, the work that you do, um, much of which I'm sure you're not compensated for, but you, you, you do that as, uh, as a public service. And I, I want to honor you uh, for that. And um, just to close off our, our session here, I, I, I wanted to, to throw a little bit of a curveball about you're having a dinner party of your dreams, um, Bruce, and you're you're able to invite a few people. Um, who is there and what are you serving at the dinner party of your dreams? Oh, right. Yes, that's right. Yeah, I was giving this some thought. Um, well, I'm not a very great cook, so I think it'd have to be a stew, probably a ch- chicken stew. I like coming together and sharing a meal around one pot. So I think I can probably handle a ch- chicken stew and I could probably make a few dump- uh, dumplings 
there on top. So that part's fine. And then for who would be there? Uh, when I started this work, this was uh, when I was doing my master's years and years ago. Uh, one of the uh, books that really inspired me with George Manuel's The Fourth World. Um, just and still, all these decades on, I carry that in my heart. I really do, particularly what you find there about resistance, about integrity, about respect, about honoring the generations, about passing it on uh, to the following generations. Uh, I think that's really important when I when I have people ask me what book should I read, I go back there all the time. Let's start with the fourth world. That's a good place to start. I think that'll set you off. It did for me on on the right road. So I I I thought about George and then I thought about um uh just what I really miss is I wish I could speak to some of my own ancestors. I really wish, you know, particularly the voices of Indigenous women mm-hmm. and those Indigenous ancestors that, um, not to tell them about myself, but to know more about them. Mm. I would love to know more. <laughs> so I, I, I thought of, of of Elizabeth Montour as one of those. She was married to James Curtis Bird, um, mm-hmm. one of those fur traders. What was life like? What did you hope your children would be able to do? I would love to have that conversation. And then uh, I read a lot of fiction. Mm-hmm. So I it's 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 the reading with the novels that really helps me stay centered grounded mm-hmm. uh, i i probably read 30 50 novels a year i think wow. it's really important and so one of my faiths for it is war is war and peace and i think one of the greatest characters in uh european fiction at least is 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 Pierre from War and Peace? Uh, he he's actually a person I think of as a person. I don't think of Pierre as a fictional character. So I think he would be a great addition to the dinner party. And for the t- three of them, George, Elizabeth, and Pierre, to be all put together uh, around uh, the best chicken stew that I could make, <laughs> I think that would be a memorable day. Excellent. Thank Perfect. Thank you, Bruce. And this has been a memorable uh, interview. I want to thank you for being uh, a man of in- integrity, you know, and uh, when I when I see uh, and I follow your work and I I, um, I learn from your work and I just want to hold you up and, uh, you know, raise my hands in respect oh. and admiration to you, Bruce, for you and your team and all that you do. And um, I look forward to uh, um, c- completing your book standoff and getting the new book so I can figure some stuff out in under a minute. 
uh, <laughs> under a minute. Under a minute. <laughs> well, thank you very much, Dan. And it's it's a real honor to join you. Thanks for the opportunity. And most importantly, thanks for all the great work that you and your team to do. Uh, I, I just get so enthusiastic all the time uh, about just the incredible work that's being done by Indigenous people mm. all across the country. Mm. As you can see, it puts a huge smile on my face. I just feel such an honor to be invited to be a little, little part of all that's very important work. So thank you very much. Thank you very much, Bruce. You're a good man. The 21st century leader must have the ability to make the most out of every situation. They are courageous and not afraid to challenge the status quo and push the boundaries to make things better. Because of these qualities and many others, the best leaders know how to get the most out of people. They enable the full potential in others. Thank you, Bruce, for being one of those leaders and for your tireless work to address injustices faced by Indigenous peoples. I encourage all of our listeners to purchase Bruce's newest book, Standoff, Why Reconciliation Fails Indigenous People and How to Fix It. Please join me in future episodes of Reconciliation Road, where I will introduce exciting change agents who are pushing the dial on reconciliation. Until then, stay safe and keep standing in the light. Masicho. Reconciliation Road is supported by the First Nations Major Projects Coalition. The FNMPC is a nonprofit organization dedicated to providing free of charge resources to First Nations in Canada, supporting their efforts to gain equity ownership stakes in major projects being developed on their traditional territories, while ensuring that the integrity of the land is maintained for the enjoyment of current and future generations. The FNMPC envisions a future where we walk the path of the Reconciliation Road together. For more information, please visit us at fnmpc.ca.